you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke, the third book in the New Testament. Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're in Luke chapter 3. I'm excited to be in Luke chapter 3. If you asked one of my children uh, who my favorite character in the Bible is, they would tell you it's John the Baptist. I don't know why I like John the Baptist so much. I guess it's, I just have this vision of a huge hairy man coming out of the middle of the wilderness and and just kind of saying whatever he wanted to say, not worried about what anyone thought about him. Um, there's something unique about John the Baptist. But liking John the Baptist is kind of strange at the same time because John the Baptist is the kind of guy that you know tells it to you straight. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks about um, what's going on in your heart and in your life. And so we come to him because we, we love him as this character that, that tells it to it, tells us straight up what is going on in our lives, but it's also kind of hurtful at the same time. And so this morning, we're going to look at John, uh, such an interesting character and such a beautiful passage of scripture. And I just want to jump right into it and we'll slowly get to see what the main point of this passage is. So if you're in Luke chapter two, we're going to read verses one through 14. Luke writes, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. The last time that we saw John, he was a little baby. Uh, Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 80, about John's childhood in a summary statement similar to what we saw with Jesus. Last week he says that he grew, he became strong in spirit, and he spent his time in the wilderness, in this desert-like, barren uninhabited Judean wilderness until the time of his public appearance in Israel. 
Now, here in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Luke sets the historical background for, for John's um, entrance onto the world stage, even actually for Jesus' entrance onto the world stage, because it quickly follows this. And he sets the stage both in terms of what we might call secular history and, and salvation history. We'll just put it in those terms because they both begin with S, and maybe that's easy to memorize. Uh, secular history. So consider first the secular history. Luke mentions seven people there in verses 1 and 2. Uh, he mentions these as a means of communicating when these events would have taken place, just kind of what was going on, the climate. And he says, first of all, that Tiberius Caesar was, was reigning, not the greatest of Caesars, pretty ruthless at times. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Now, normally, the governor of Judea, or the um, the prefect might be a better word, but normally this person would have been a Jewish person put in place by uh, the Roman government, and it had been. Uh, Herod the Great had been over a large section. He was a, a Jewish leader, and he'd been over a large section. But when um, he was deposed, he, he separated this into different sections. Um, and one of his sons was put in charge of this area of Judea, but he was such a terrible and ruthless ruler that the Jews appealed to Rome and said, we'd like someone else in here, and so he was kicked out, and that's how uh, Pilate, who was not a Jew, became the ruler in Judea. Two other sons remained. Herod is mentioned here. It's Herod Antipas, and then Philip, who was another son of Herod the Great. They're both called Tetrarchs. That means literally ruler of a fourth. Of course, it was only divided into three sections, so I don't know why they were called tetrarchs. But they ruled in these areas mentioned, and then the, the fourth uh, ruler in this area, his name is um, Licinius. Licinius, I should probably say. He's in Abilene, which is further north. So we're getting an idea of who's around here. If you want to study that further, feel free to do so. Uh, two others are mentioned, Annas and Caiaphas, and they are said to be the high priest, singular, Annas, Caiaphas. The high priest, of course, there was only one high priest. Annas had been the high priest, but when he was uh, taken down, he made sure that his sons were high priests after him. And so he was high priest, he was still living, and four of his sons were high priests, and then now Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, became the high priest. So Annas kind of keeps the title because he's still alive, and also because it seems like he still holds a good bit of the social and the political power that would have gone along with this position. So now all of this together, we're not going to go too much deeper than what we did. That's maybe deeper than we should have gone into it. But all of this together helps us to know the date of what's going on here. If you want to look as a historian, and it shows us that this all happened around AD 28, give or take a year. Also from this brief sketch, we get this picture, uh, these these names that are recurring, these names that are, that are going to show up again at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Many of them you probably recognize we start to see this this highly politicized, volatile, power-hungry age that John is entering into. It's it's a time of of darkness and of 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 fighting amongst these these men in power, and this is where John and Jesus are coming to minister to. It's not much different than our age, you might say, or or any age, but this gives us a picture of what's going on. So that's the the secular history. It's not really terribly unique, but what is unique is this moment in salvation history. It says in verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So in the midst of this, the word of God comes to John. 
in salvation history and the story of God's redemption, this is a great turning point. Or better yet, it's it's kind of a bridge. It, it um, the the phrase the word of God came to reminds us reminds us of Old Testament prophets where the word of God comes to them. And then Luke quotes this pro- this prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, and John is the fulfillment of this. He's the Old Testament voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then, so, so John is is closely tied to the Old Testament prophets, and he's considered the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But he's also the heralder. He's the proclaimer of a of a new age. He's this bridge that connects the old and the new testament. He connects the 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 prophecies of the past to the events of the present and of the future. And so John fulfills this unique role. And as that bridge, he he comes out of the wilderness. And from other texts, we see he comes out and he's he's clothed with with camel skin with a leather belt tied around his waist. And he walks around in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey which is a very strange diet. And he comes out as this man who, who probably had a Nazarite vow, so he's probably had a, a big beard and long hair, and he comes out into the area around the Jordan River, and he proclaims this message. And it's a message of preparation. You think about this in history. Let's think about John's message of preparation. Preparation, what comes to mind when you think of or when you hear that word, Preparation. You might think of someone coming over to your house and everything that you need to do to get ready for that. You need to prepare a meal, or you need to vacuum the floor. You need to kind of clear a path in the toys so that everyone can find where the bathroom is or something. That's what we would do at our house. Uh, or maybe those of you that are in the medical field, you think of preparation that there's preparation that has to happen for before surgery could take place, or, or even just before blood is drawn. So something needs to be clean so that that, that can happen. That it has to be prepared. This idea of preparation, it's that something needs to happen. There's something is necessary to happen because something else is coming, because someone else is coming. Luke quotes Isaiah 40, who illustrates the preparation ministry of of John the Baptist in terms of the building of a road, of a highway. You see that where every valley shall be filled and the mountains and the hills made low and the crooked become straight and the rough places are made smooth. You ever drive down the highway and you think about, I wonder what this area looked like before the road was here. I wonder what they had to do to get this this spot ready for a highway. You can drive and you see kind of the man-made cliffs on either side and you think, man, I wonder how much rock they had to blow away so that this road could come through here. Or maybe you go across a bridge and it, it spans this this river or a valley and they had to put that in so that the, the road was smooth so that you could get to that place or, or maybe there's a spot where the road could have gone around the mountain but instead it just blasts right through and there's a tunnel to for the road to come through that's that's the the picture here this picture that john is coming and he's preparing a road he's making a, a straight path for the messiah to come into the world and the entire landscape everything is changing so that this road can be built of course john's not building a literal road is he and he doesn't go out and Ran a backhoe and clear a path from Nazareth to Jordan so that Jesus has a, a clear place to come. So what is, what is he preparing? Why has John come before Jesus? Why is he in front of Jesus? What is the way that he is preparing? John is preparing people. John is preparing hearts. He is seeking to, to clear a path in the hearts of people for the revival, for the arrival of the promised deliverer. 
Even the words that are mentioned in that prophecy of Isaiah give this this picture of, of the, the hills and the mountains. They are to be literally humbled. The mountains are to be humbled. And this the word for crooked, it can often talk about sinful crookedness, so that the crookedness needs to be made straight in the hearts of those that are preparing for the coming Messiah. John is preparing hearts. So John's ministry as an Old Testament prophet is this. He's to bridge the gap. He's to make way for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the hearts of men and women who have been waiting in expectation. He bridges the gap. He makes the way for the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the hearts of men and women who have been waiting in expectation. And how, how does he do that? How does he prepare the people? He does it through the twin pillars of his message, and they are baptism and repentance. Baptism and repentance. Baptism is obviously at the core of John's ministry because it becomes part of his name. Uh, the Baptist is not on John's birth certificate. That was not his middle name, John the Baptist, whatever would be his last name, I guess. Um, nor was he the founder of the Baptist denomination. John was not the first Baptist in that sense. Okay, He was, rather people called him that because he baptized people, and so he earned the title. He was John the Baptizer. So people would say, have you guys heard about John? And someone would say, John, but John, oh, you mean that, that guy that's out at the Jordan baptizing people? And so they would say, well, just don't, let's avoid that question. Have you guys heard about John the baptizer, John the Baptist? So it just became so much a part of who he was that it actually became a part of his name. Now, John's baptism doesn't have the, the full-orbed sense uh, that we have of baptism today, obviously, because Jesus had not died and risen from the grave. But there are certainly parallels. The focus, though, seems to be on cleansing and renewing. This baptism was a baptism for cleansing and for renewing. For the Jewish people who John would primarily be speaking to, this wasn't a foreign concept. Baptism wasn't something they'd never seen or heard of. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jewish person underneath the old covenant, they needed to do three things. First, they needed to profess their belief in the teachings of Judaism. Second, they needed to be circumcised. That's the sign and the seal of the covenant back from Genesis 17, and every Jewish person needed to do that. And third, in this age, they would have been baptized. Now, we understand the first two, but what about this baptism? R.C. Sproul was writing on these verses, and he says, because the, the reason why is because the Gentile, who was a stranger and foreigner to the covenant of God, was considered to be unclean. So before he could enter into the household of Israel, into the covenant of Moses, he had to be washed. So the Jews knew what baptism was. It had to do with cleansing. And since this is a, a baptism of repentance, it's for the forgiveness of sins. They would have seen that it's meant to be a picture of the cleansing from sin. Now, what would have not made sense to them is that John was telling them that they needed to be baptized. Gentiles, yes, but the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, they would have said, well, we don't need to be baptized. Why do we need to go and get dunked in the Jordan River? We are already clean because we are children of Abraham. Not, not only would it have not made sense to them, but it would actually probably have been fairly offensive to them, and we'll see that a little bit more in a moment. But the first pillar is baptism. The second is, is repentance. They're closely tied. You might say they're two sides of the same coin if you want to think about it that way. Uh, baptism would have followed repentance as a sign of true repentance. So baptism without repentance was useless in John's mind. There's no point in getting baptized unless you are truly repentant. 
What does repentance mean? Repentance most simply means it means to 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 turn completely around, to be going one direction and to to head in the complete opposite direction. The turning is is tied to the idea that we're headed in the wrong direction. That that, that there is you recognize that there's remorse, there's conviction. You say I'm going the wrong way. It prompts us to say I'm wrong. I need to turn around. A good way to think about it is repentance is, is in your head, it's an intellectual knowledge of what sin is. In your heart, it's, it's a remorse, it's a, a heartfelt hatred of sin. And then in our wills, it's something that causes us to change. So in our minds, we recognize what sin is. In our hearts, we, we don't like the sin that we see. And therefore, it motivates us to change our lives, to, to turn around, to do something different. I, I repent a lot when I drive downtown. Not because I'm an angry driver and I have to repent of my anger, but because I'm often often headed in the wrong direction. I think I know where I'm going, and I start going down a street, usually the right way down a one-way street, sometimes not. Um, And I start going down that one-way street, and I think I'm going in the right direction, and I realize, oh, this is the exact opposite way. I I want to be going away from the river, not towards the river, and so I have to repent. (laughs) I have to turn around. Now, repentance is not something that we talk about when we're driving. If you make a wrong turn on your GPS, you will not hear it say, Repent! Repent! You're going the wrong way! Uh, If you do, that's a unique GPS, I think. Um, No, repentance is usually always tied to religious circumstances, correct? Uh, In fact, we might even say that it's always talked about within churches. But we could also say that it's probably not talked about as much as it should be in churches. Well, why is that? One reason may be because when sometimes we talk about repentance, and you may even feel this as we're going through this, it starts to hint at some sort of works-based salvation, that there's something I need to do, I need to turn, and that's what's going to make me holy before God. If I do what's right, if I stop sinning and start following God, we start to think that what we're saying is, here's what you need to be do to be saved. You need to turn from your sins and start walking in the right direction. However, repentance in Scripture is always, always, always tied to belief. You repent and you believe. This is the refrain that Jesus comes and he preaches. He says, repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. So John is is unique because he's in a sense, he's this this bridge. And Jesus has not come on the scene yet. And so his message is, is purely repent. But there's an element where we're turning for, for what kind of a repentance is it? It's It says, um, repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John emphasizes turning from sin, forsaking our old ways, our wicked ways of living, and turning to God for forgiveness and a new life. But the message is when you turn, you're looking for forgiveness. So you're turning to someone. You're turning in belief. So I want to be clear, we're not made right before God by what we do. Nor do you need to be clean before you come to God. We are saved when God gives us the gift of repentance such that we turn from our sins and we turn to him for forgiveness. We'll talk more about that, but I just want to make that clear. Uh, Another reason we probably don't talk about repentance as much as we should is because when we talk about true repentance, we start to sound like John the Baptist. Uh, and such a message, such a loud, booming voice crying in the wilderness does not necessarily go over too well. Uh, think about 
John's sermon introduction in verse 7. These are the first words of John the Baptist in the Bible. People are coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized, and you can envision John however you want. And he comes out, and he opens his mouth with this wonderfully inviting phrase in verse 7. He says to the crowds, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? says, hey, thanks for coming out, you bunch of snakes. <laughs> you offspring of poisonous vipers. That's what he calls the people that are coming to hear him. It's a pretty strong message, isn't it? I thought about starting the sermon that way just for fun to see what might happen. Good morning, you bunch of snakes. But ask my wife and it didn't seem like a good idea. Now, if you're unsure about what John is trying to communicate, then we only need to hear his words echoed by Jesus. Jesus uses the same phrase, Matthew 12, 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? He calls them vipers, why? Because he says, you're evil. And in, in, Matt, in John 8, he just skips the whole metaphor. He doesn't say, you're offspring of vipers. He says, you're offspring, you are children of who? The devil. Children of your father, the devil. So John's point is clear, and it's clarified by Jesus. You who are coming out to me, you are sinful children of Satan. That's the message. Not only that, but he implies that because of their sin, they are under the wrath of God. That's what um, the rest of verse 7 says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's this thought that God is angry with them, that there is wrath upon them. There is judgment coming on those who have sinned and all have sinned. He says later, this judgment's coming soon. He talks about a tree, that there's a tree and the axe is already laid at the root. And if you have not repented, the tree is coming down. If you do not repent, there is trouble coming. There, you are in danger. And he says, the trees that don't bear good fruit, that do not show fruits of true repentance, are cut down and they are thrown into the fire. The fire reminiscent of eternal death of hell, of punishment, of the wrath of God. Now we start to see why we don't necessarily want to talk about repentance. It's not a popular topic in our age. Don did not, though, he didn't write the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, nor did Jesus, really. Their message was the same, repent and believe. And the message was the same as the apostles, and Paul picks up on us on it, and it's the message, the unpopular message, that we preach Today, it's a message that says, apart from Jesus, we are enemies of God, we, re we are rebels against him, and therefore we are justly under God's wrath. In the book that we've been discussing in Sunday School, D.A. Carson writes this, he says, we live in an age where the one wrong thing to say is that somebody else is wrong. We live in an age where the one wrong thing to say is that somebody else is wrong. And John comes out and he says, you're all a bunch of snakes. You're a bunch of sinners, and God's wrath is upon you. This is where the gospel message has to begin. It has to begin at a place of recognizing that we are sinners, that we are rebels against God. Otherwise, true repentance isn't possible. It wouldn't even be necessary. Let's go back downtown, and I'm, I'm driving down uh, the, the wrong way down this street, not the wrong way down a one-way street. I'm just heading in the wrong direction. I'm not going the right way. Now, if I think I'm going in the right way, and I don't realize that I'm heading in the wrong direction, will I ever turn around? No. 
I'll just keep going because I think I'm headed in the right direction. And if we go to our friends and neighbors and we, and even we ourselves, if we don't see that, that we are sinful, that we are headed in the wrong direction, then we will never turn. We will never repent. Unless people see, unless we see our sin is rebellion against God and it places us in danger of eternal wrath from a holy God, then we will never repent. The first step in the gospel is to understand that we are sinners. Someone has said you have to be lost before you can be saved. And so John here is doing what a good preacher should do. He's getting his people lost. He's helping them to see how lost they really are. You might ask, though, why is John so hard on these people? I mean, they're coming out to be baptized. It says it clearly. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. They're coming. They are coming and they want to be baptized by John. Don't you think you can cut him a little slack, John? No, he doesn't. Because the issue seems to be that, that while they were coming, they were not coming in true repentance. What were they going out to see, Jesus later asks. What were they going out to see? The core message here, I think, is in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I think John's main point is true repentance bears fruit. True repentance bears fruit. There is a kind of repentance. Paul calls it worldly repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. There's this kind of repentance that's sorry for sin, but in a sense that I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for the consequences of my sin. But it doesn't look at sin as wicked, snake-like rebellion against God. It's just upset that it got caught or that the consequences have been bad. I'm, I repent because I ended up in jail. I'm not really sorry. I don't really see my sin as against God. I'm just sorry that this happened to me. Now, that kind of repentance, according to John and according to the rest of Scripture, is, is not real. And it's evidenced as being not real because there is no lasting change. There may, there may be initial evidences that a person has seen that they're driving in the wrong direction. So maybe they see they're heading down the wrong road and they, they stop the car and pull over and think, you know, I need to really rethink about the direction that I'm going. Or, or maybe they turn down a side street just for a little bit. It, it looks like repentance. But all of a sudden they start heading the same direction. It doesn't, it doesn't last. It's the story of the seeds that fall on the different ground and some are choked out. There looks like there is fruit. There looks like there is life, but it never bears lasting fruit. So when John calls the crowd, he tells them that they need to repent. It would seem that there's, there's one section of the crowd. He says, you need to repent. And they say, John, don't you know who I am? I think it's the first response. Don't you know who I am, John? Don't you know who I am? I, he says, don't tell me. He says, we have, he says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That means that some people were saying to John, don't you know who I am, John? I'm a child of Abraham. Why do you think I need to be baptized? Why do you think I need to repent? Abraham is my father. They said, we don't need to be baptized. We don't need to repent. We are good with God because of who we are. And John says, don't tell me that. God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That would be quite the blow to a Jewish person. We might remember in Galatians when Paul makes it clear that it's not those that are born of the lineage physically of Abraham that are his children, but it's who? 
It's those that are faithful, that, that have faith, that are true children of God. So his point is, it doesn't matter who you are. I know who you are. You're a brood of vipers, and you're in need of repentance and faith. So it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if they were extremely spiritual. It doesn't matter your spiritual lineage, who who uh, in your family is a Christian, or how long your parents have been members of a church, or your grandparents go the generations back. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter at all. It doesn't matter if your husband or your wife or your children, or your aunt, or your uncle, or anyone else is a follower of Jesus, that doesn't automatically make you one. The question is, have you repented? Have you truly repented? And in such a way that you bear fruit. So some said, don't you know who I am? And then another group says, John, don't you see what I've done? Don't you see what I've done, John? They say, hey, John, we did this whole baptism thing. We came out, you were there, you dunked us in the water. We were baptized. And John says, you got got wet, but you didn't repent. And I know you didn't repent. Why? Because you're still walking in your sinful ways. You're still headed down the exact same street. You haven't changed. So people were turning to John and to his baptism and saying, well, let's be baptized so that we're ready. And John says, no, it's not just, it's not a baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. The baptism without the repentance is useless. It's just some sort of external thing that we can do that suddenly, oh, God is now happy with me because I was baptized. And he says, no, because you haven't truly repented, because I don't see any fruit of repentance. Is the fruit what saves them? No, but the fruit is evidence of the fact that they have truly repented, that they are wanting to turn. For us, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you joined a church, if you've taken communion. I'll hit my own tradition. It doesn't matter if you've walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card. It doesn't matter if you've taught Sunday school, if you've done anything else. It doesn't matter if you have not truly repented of your sins. If you've not turned in faith to Jesus, then you are still under the wrath of God. External actions cannot change your internal heart. Only God can come and expose sin for what it is, give us the gift of repentance, forgive us of our sins, and allow us to truly bear the fruit of repentance. So John comes and there's this group that says, don't you know who I am? And John says, I know who you are. And it doesn't matter if you don't truly repent. And others say, don't you see what we've done? And John says, it doesn't matter what you've done if you haven't truly repented. But then there's this group that says, John, what now must we do? What must I do now is kind of the third response. Don't, don't you know who I am? Don't you see what I've done? And then this third group, what must I do now? Reminds me of the Philippian jailer, a truly repentant heart says, what must I do to be saved? He says, and, and the response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Coupled with it, repent and believe. And a heart that truly repents and believes then asks, what must I do now? This is what's verses 10 through 14. It was almost a sermon for next week, but I decided to fit it in here. Uh, he says, it says, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So the crowds come out and they say, John, we, we hear what you're saying. What should we do? 
I think that's evidence of a heart that is that is truly repent, or at least that is that is trying to understand what this repentance looks like. They say, John, we we know we got it. We have to change. Will you tell us what's this going to look like in our lives? I, I think we could again do a full sermon on this, but think about it this way: that true repentance bears fruit, and the fruit of repentance that he mentions here is putting on holiness and love, and putting off sin and selfishness. It's putting on holiness and love and putting off sin and selfishness. This is the fruit of true repentance, of true belief. Let's just read those verses again. The crowds come, they say, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Stop right there. Just the, whole, the, the general response is if you've truly repented, then you are going to be generous and unselfish with everything that you have. I think if someone said, what's the sign of true repentance that, that many of us would say, and I include myself in this, we would say, well, you should probably come to church and read your Bible and do things like that. What's John's response? If you have an extra coat, you should give it to someone that doesn't have one. If you have enough food and you know that there's people that don't have enough food, you should give them food. Now, the issue is that so often what we do in our minds is we say, that's what's going to make me acceptable to God. If I go serve the homeless, if I donate all my stuff to goodwill, if I do these good things, then that kind of earns me points with God. It's, what John's saying is, no, this is the fruit of a life that is truly repentant. If you've seen the error of your ways, if you've seen your selfishness, if you've seen your unholiness, you will turn from that and your life will be marked by kindness and by generosity. He says to the tax collectors who come, verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now, these guys are not, you know, high in society. These are Jewish people that have sold themselves out to the Roman government and now go to their fellow Jewish people and collect taxes for Rome and then add a little bit extra for themselves. And so what are they supposed to do? They came. They said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And he says to the soldiers, who were probably also Jewish, they may have been the enforcers behind the tax collectors to make sure that the money got to them, and he says to them, they say, what shall we do? And he said to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's interesting, John doesn't say, I'll tell you what you should do, you should go get yourself a camel skin coat and come out here with me, and we'll just be in the desert here all by ourselves, and we'll be holy that way. He doesn't tell tax collectors or soldiers to quit their jobs. He says, just change. Stop doing the things that are unholy and that are selfish. Change. Repent of those things. That's wrong. You can still be a tax collector. Just be a holy tax collector. Be a kind tax collector. Be a generous one. Can you imagine what would happen? The tax collectors show up at the door where they've continued to ask this exorbitant amount of money and suddenly they start asking for less? What would the people there that they're collecting taxes from start to say? John knows this. He knows if you go back and you say, I don't want as much as I took last week because I was taking too much. I was kind of skimming off the top. I was taking more than I was supposed to. So just give me this. This is all that's required. They would say, well, what happened to you? He said, well, I went and got baptized. Well, it wasn't just that I got baptized. 
I, I, I saw my sin and, and I repented. And, and John told me that if I really was repentant, if I, if I really did want to change, and I do, I really want to change, that I wouldn't charge any more than I was supposed to. And so I'm not going to. Imagine the change that would happen. This is, this is that everyday faithfulness that we talked about, isn't it? It's recognizing these are the things that are in my, it, you, you look at, at your job, at your position in life, at your, whatever you're at, whether you're a, a father or a mother or a child or, or a daughter or whatever it might be, or, or your, your work position. There's certain temptations. There's certain things that you're going to fall into. And John says, if you're truly repentant, you'll see that. You'll see the unholiness. You'll see the unkindness. You'll see the lack of generosity. And you'll repent and you'll change. If you are truly repentant, you will bear fruits that show that you are truly repentant. So John's message is true repentance bears fruit, and the fruit of repentance is the putting on of holiness and love and the putting off of sin and selfishness. Now this is the, you might say, the initial entrance into the kingdom of God that John proclaims. But it's also that we live a lives of we live lives of continual repentance, lives that continually say, "What do I need to do? What must I do to show that I truly see my sin and want to turn from it?" But what I reckon, you know, we're driving down the road and we say, "I'm heading the wrong direction. I need to turn. I need to do something different." Our lives are always marked by repentance, and true repentance bears fruit, and it shows up in holiness where we cast things off. And it shows up in love, where we where we take things on. We say, this is what I need to do. Let me read you an, an article, part of an article. It's extremely small, and so I'm going to have to hold it up to my eyes. I couldn't get it to print any different. It's from the New York Times, March 22nd, 1885. <laughs> A little bit older. This isn't current news, okay? Listen to this. It says, the title is, The Reverend Steve Holcomb, 17 Years a professional card sharper, and now a preacher. From the Louisville Courier-Journal. This is So the New York Times picked up an article from the Louisville Courier-Journal in 1885. Must have been a pretty big deal, I think, right? It says, in the heart of Louisville's gambling quarter, none of you know where that's at, I hope, uh, on Jefferson Street, between 4th and 5th, one man, one man has been seen daily for years. He is plainly, almost shabbily dressed. His face is pallid and careworn always, and on it deep lines are graven, but not by the fifty winters whose passing has left him still in his prime. He wears no beard, save a stubby brown mustache, and his hair, hardly touched with gray, falls partly over a high forehead on which anxious lines are ever resting. The deep-set, keen blue eyes are the most prominent feature of his face, and they burn with a fire that is never quenched. The man is the Reverend Stephen Holcomb. He is the well-known reformed gambler and city missionary. He is doing a work which no other minister has attempted and which no one else can do. The article goes on to talk about Steve Holcomb's testimony, about his life as a gambler. Um, and that was his profession was to gamble. He's one of the most well-known gamblers of the South, and he would go all around, and that's how he made his living. And as quick as he made money, he'd spend it. One day he got beat in a card game in some town and he joined up with the guy that beat him and they worked the system together and made money and spent money as quick as they could. Ended up back in Louisville, uh, was on the racing circuit for a while, which makes sense, I guess, if you're in Louisville, and then opened up some houses where he was dealing cards and making 
money that way. It says that uh, he, later on here, it says he, he owned some real estate at that time. Uh, and one day a Methodist minister, the Reverend Gross Alexander, I guess that's his first name, Gross Alexander, uh, came to rent a cottage from him. During the arrangement, the arrangement of the matter, the gambler incidentally mentioned his occupation. Mr. Alexander, just a faithful pastor, laid his hand upon Holcomb's shoulder and said, If that is the case, my brother, I hope this medium will be profitable in more ways than one. The gambler accepted an invitation to attend the preacher's meeting and was converted. How do we know he was really converted? It says he joined the church. Is that enough evidence? Could be. Maybe not. Maybe that's something eternal, like getting baptized. But then it says, and from that day entered upon his life's work. He began laboring among his old associates and the miserable and degraded wherever they could be found. His charity was never appealed to in vain. And in a short time, he and his family were without a penny. <laughs> he was so generous that they lost all their money. They actually had to leave Louisville and live somewhere else. Finally moved back, uh, got a job. And it says the laborers of the reformed gambler among an old among his old associates attracted the attention about four years ago of the Reverend J.C. Morris, then pastor of the Walnut Street Baptist Church. If you ever heard of Walnut Street, that's the oldest Baptist church here in, in Louisville. He suggested to Mr. Holcomb that he devote his whole time to mission work, and he has done so. A mission room was first opened in the Tyler Block and was so successful that it was moved about two years since to its present position, the good it is doing is incalculable and is familiar to all. Mr. Holcomb was licensed as a local preacher four years ago. The mission is his life work, and he says he will quit it under no consideration. He has the confidence and respect of every gambler in the city, and every now and then is successful in leading one to a better life. I changed that last line. Successful in leading them to repentance, just like he repented. Uh, Stephen Holcomb was the founder of the Jefferson Street Baptist Center. Uh, it's the oldest ministry to the homeless here in Louisville, and it's actually, uh, from what they told me, it's it's the fourth oldest in all of the United States, and it's it's here in Louisville. And it started because this man was converted. How do we know that he was converted? I think he clearly follows what John, if he went to John the Baptist and he said, what must I do, then John would have said the same thing. Put on holiness. Put off sin and, and selfishness and serve others. If you got two coats, give to someone. If you've got enough food, help them out. And he goes to those that are in need and he helps them. And it's evidence that he's truly converted. It doesn't earn his salvation, but it changes him. And he's changed so much by Christ that he turns his life and he starts walking in a different direction. Uh, I included that I was at a, a lunch this past uh, Wednesday at Jefferson Street talking about the ministry that they're doing, and they're doing some amazing gospel-centered work, seeing people repent, come to faith, helping them not just to get a job and to get back into society, but to truly understand who Jesus is, to truly ask that question, what must I do now if I'm truly saved? What do I need to do? It's a hard work, and I think that they're doing it. Well, and that's why, if you've got it in your bulletin, I included just this little thing that they, they asked us to put in. And I, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. If you've got 250, it says you can feed a hungry person a hot, hearty meal with generous, uh, with the generous serving of hope, it says. This will not earn your salvation. But it could be evidence that you're truly repentant. I don't know. 
I'm not asking everyone to do this. I just thought I'd put it in there because I thought it tied in well. But do you see what John's saying here? It's true repentance bears fruit. So have you truly repented? Have you truly turned your life over to Jesus? Or have you just done something external? Something that kind of, it looks good on the outside. It's, you know, just like the baptism. You know, I, this is good and it's what I'm supposed to do and so I do it and now I feel comfortable and I feel like I'm safe. But you're still headed down the same street. You haven't turned. You haven't changed. Your life has not been radically transformed. Or, or maybe you're putting your confidence in something else. Well, my parents or, or my spouse or my children or someone else, you know, I've got this lineage and we kind of all go to church and so I'm saved. That's not true repentance. True repentance says, what must I do? It says, I need to change my whole life if this is who Jesus is. That Jesus has come to live and to die, to pay the penalty for my sin. He has come to rescue us from the wrath to come. Not by what we do, but because of repentance. We repent and we believe and we are saved from the wrath to come. And the other question I think we is appropriate is, do you live a life of continual repentance? Do you see the ways that you're walking in the wrong direction? Is your life marked by holiness and love, by a lack of, of selfishness, by the putting off of sin, by generosity and kindness to all people? What will it look like for each of us individually? I don't know. doesn't mean you need to quit and become a pastor. doesn't mean you need to quit and start a homeless mission. It, it might mean that you just need to be like the tax collectors or the soldiers to recognize the things that are in your life that might, that might not be right, that might be against God and to change them. And God will use that repentance to bear fruit in your life and in the lives of others. John's message is, is strong, isn't it? It's one that calls us to recognize that we are sinful, God-hating people, and that his wrath is upon us. But if we will repent, we will turn, and if we will put our faith in Christ, who took God's wrath upon himself, dying on the cross. We will believe, and he will change us, and he will make us his children.